Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Ed Vincent, who is the founder and CEO of Festival Pass, the world's first festival and live events subscription marketplace, providing access to thousands of experiences across the globe with music, film, food, wine, arts, sport, theater, lifestyle, tech, innovation experiences, all of those under Festival Pass. Obviously, you've been hit by COVID, so things have adapted and changed, and we talk about that in this episode. Ed also has multiple exits. He's a multi-time founder, and he was a product and data consultant at MoviePass, where he oversaw product and data monetization. We talk about that as well in this episode. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. And one final note, as of this recording, as of this release, you can invest in Festival Pass, the first live event subscription marketplace, at wefunder.com slash festivalpass. That's wefunder.com slash festivalpass. You can now invest in the company. And as of this recording as well, they have raised over $100,000 on this WeFunder campaign. So get in while you can. Without further ado, here is Ed Vincent, founder and CEO of Festival Pass. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. And with Festival Pass, there's there's a lot to discuss there and even your background and history and kind of expertise as well. But for people who aren't familiar, can you give us a little like uh, overview of what Festival Pass is to start with? Sure, sure. So there, there's context, I think, to everything. And, and I don't know if you want to um, talk about this through that context lens, but on the high level, Festival Pass is a subscription marketplace for the live event space. Um, so think of uh, think of the way Airbnb works for um, for rooms and homes for rent. Uh, you know, we look at it as a marketplace that has thousands upon thousands of events that people can come to that are uh, through hundreds or even thousands of different uh, rights holders and owners. And for one monthly subscription, you can access all of those events. And then with Festival Pass too, and understanding that, that's where it kind of looks like today. How did this get started, Ed? Sure, sure. So uh, that's where the context goes is I have, <laughs> I've been an, uh, an entrepreneur for over 20 years. And, um, you know, my first um, uh, company was in 1999 uh, during the Internet 1.0 days. Uh, I created an e-commerce company with a with a friend and, and sold that in 2001. Uh, and then through the 2000s, um, I had a agency, about a 70-person experiential marketing agency. Um, and part of our role was to help brands market and integrate at large events. And that's when I started really appreciating and loving the magic that happens at a live event. Um, the community that's built, the people that are there, the, the once in a moment time that that actual event was happening. Um, and that was uh, a lot in the film fe- uh, festival space then, but also uh, a lot of food and wine events and, and music events. And I really started trying to understand, like, you know, what is this industry all about? Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. We helped build a few film festivals. We owned one in the Dominican Republic. Uh, we even helped uh, create and brand a Maxim magazine branded hotel in the, in the Caribbean, in, in the Dominican. It was called nice. Maxim Bungalows, which was a lot of fun. Uh, I happened to be friends with the CEO at the time, and we uh, came up with the idea to, to make that happen. Uh, and then uh, moving on, uh, you know, went back into my tech roots, uh, had a software as a service business that I sold in 2014. And then for the last five, six years, I had founded uh, with a, a consultancy, a data consultancy in the entertainment space that still exists today. Um, 
but uh, it's now run uh, by one of the partners that um, was one of my um, partners in the business. And we helped large television and other entertainment brands really understand their data and build a data architecture and infrastructure to be able to not only um, gather, but enrich and then activate their data assets for the best of the consumer. Um, so those are companies like A&E Networks and AMC Networks and Screen Vision, who sells all the ads in front of the, the movie theater, if you happen yep. to be there on time. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, during that process, and this is really the last piece of the, the context journey, during that process, I was asked to come into a company called MoviePass, which a lot of people have heard of uh, as their interim chief data officer um, through my company. And, and I did that for about 18 months. And um, it was an interesting experience where I learned a, a lot about what what things were done very well in terms of the aggregation, collection, and use of data, uh, and what subscription businesses looked like, but also learned a lot about what doesn't work. Uh, <clears throat> and when when I decided to launch Festival Pass, um, I saw a big need in the market for the type of industry it was, but then also applied all those past learnings from all my entrepreneurial journeys. So some of my uh, investors and board members uh, say today that I'm the right guy for this specific company at this specific time because all of my past experiences kind of brought me to that space. Yeah, it seems like the combination of a lot of different things that just make sense for where your background is, where your expertise lies in to then come up with Festival Pass. And and just going back for a second, you mentioned it was interesting being at Movie Pass, and I'm sure many, many people are familiar with it. Uh, I would love to know more about that experience in terms of like what types of things you're working on or, or looking at from uh, the subscription side of things to start with. Sure. So there's um, there's a lot there. Um, and, you know, that could be a, a, an entire day's conversation, <laughs> uh, a lot of those specifics. But of course. the subscription side, I mean, one of the core things that I promised myself in Festival Pass was that I never want to build a company where when I asked the consumer to do more of what what they signed up to do, that I lose money uh, as a company. And, uh, yeah. and that, unfortunately, when you have a subsidized model um, and, you know, with MoviePass, there was a, you know, a small monthly fee uh, for, uh, for a while for an unlimited amount of going to the movies. And when you have a model like that, um, what happens is, you know, 20, 30% of the group overuses and 70% underuses. Uh, and, and you try and find some middle ground to create a margin, but the margin is always unpredictable and you never know what your operating capital costs uh, are going to be. Uh, and that's a really hard business to run. Um, there are ways to build out of that where you get scale, uh, subsidizing the consumer through the first you know, path of it. Uh, and then alter the business model at a later date in order to um, sustain gross margin. And there are companies that have done that successfully. Um, you know, even when you see the worlds of Uber and Lyfts, which are marketplaces, you know, they would often subsidize pricing within a market in order to gain enough scale where the market dynamics worked before they then went back to kind of normalize pricing. The other example um, of a company that successfully started one way, but then learned uh how would it change that? And, and we, we went to school on as a company called ClassPass, um, where they had all the same problems that somebody like MoviePass did early for the first three, four years. And then about four years ago, they uh, decided to change to a credit-based business model, which enables um, the 
the heterogeneous inventory to be priced appropriately in a supply and demand environment. And I can <clears throat> dig into as much as that as you want to hear about. Um, but what that enables is really a gross margin positive transaction every time somebody redeems credits. Uh, so we learned that ClassPass, uh, that allowed them to grow into 30 countries and be valued at well over a billion dollars. Um, so we kind of started from day one under that guise and that model. Yeah, I actually would like to hear more behind that and that switch to that type of model and how how that was beneficial. Because definitely just from from a context perspective for other people listening who are trying to either create uh, subscription like or marketplaces, uh, I think you have a ton of experience in this in this kind of space. And so would love to hear more about that. Sure. So um, on the credit based model, if that's what you want me to dig into, is um, you know so what happens is. Whatever the price of it, there's two types of inventory in a marketplace. You can either have homogeneous inventory or heterogeneous inventory. So in the worlds of ride sharing, that's homogeneous inventory, right? So so outside of choosing a large SUV versus a you know an Uber XL or whatever it is, at the end of the day, the majority of rides are simply a good, clean driver in a reasonable car uh, to get you from point A to point B, right? So that's right. You don't really care who shows up, what car they bring, uh, you know, within some reason. Uh, So that's all homogeneous inventory. It's the same. It's the same inventory. Um, When you get into the context of uh, heterogeneous inventory, that means unique things that are priced differently, that there's a lot of different um, uh, cost mechanisms to it. Right. And Airbnb is a great example of that. Right. So you could you could book a, you know, fifty dollar room in somebody's apartment in Kansas City or you can book a 3000 a night um, you know chateau in France <laughs> yeah. um, so you would it would be unable to run a sustainable model in that context to say hey you can have you know unlimited bookings for a certain price or you could you know choose to get five bookings a month for a certain price you can't do that with heterogeneous inventory so what you can do is you can um, enable a credit based system that allows the platform to control the currency um, and that's what we've done, and that's what ClassPass had done. So, you know, in the ClassPass world, uh, you know, if, if there's a um, heavily sought-after yoga class at 6 p.m. after everybody gets out of work, that might traditionally cost 30 or 40 dollars, um, and maybe that's 30 credits. Um, but there may be a Pilates class at noon on a Wednesday that nobody goes to traditionally, and that might be five credits. So people can choose to spend the currency that they've purchased on a monthly basis in any way they want. And where, where that, what that makes sense for the platform from an economic standpoint is the pricing of the credits can be priced not only for supply and demand, which helps both the uh, owner of the inventory as well as the platform, but you can always ensure that you're taking at least a small margin on that transaction. So if five credits are redeemed um, and effectively, let's say, you have to pay the class or the event for those credits. At least the platform's retaining one credit to operate the business. And then understanding that from from that model, understanding that from your experience before, take me through then with with Festival Pass and that then you're using that as well. Then so what are the complexities or what, what are any, anything with with choosing the right amount for for each one? How's that gone for you for Festival Pass? Yeah, so we're still in the early stages. So um, there's a couple things that are interesting and exciting, and of course with COVID. Uh, things kind of slowed a bit. But the uh, exciting part for, for me is that there's many data points that go into pricing, right? So as a platform, we're in a position that we can 
um, how do I say, control the price? Uh, that might, control might be the wrong word, but we can uh, we can determine the price yeah. based upon a lot, of, a lot of information, right? So the first thing is, of course, what is the retail price of an event? So if an event costs $100, um, the amount it costs in credits starts with that underlying data point, right? But it's not the only one. So it's not only, hey, how do dollars transform into credits? The other pieces are, um, as I mentioned before, supply and demand, right? So if, if an event is highly sought after, it's going to be closer to the retail price in general. If it's something where there may be um, a need to try and fill the event, um, not necessarily to the, the consumer may not know that that's the reason, but the lower the price, just like um, on airlines, right? The lower the price, right. more people jump in and, and buy. Um, but for us, the, the real key ingredient is all the other data points, right? So um, as I mentioned, I have a ton of uh, experience building consumer data assets. And the more we know about our user, the more we can do things that are good for them, that increases the lifetime value that they receive from the platform, but also increases the lifetime value of the customer for us. So in addition to supply and demand, we, we may be pulling in you know weather data, so that we know that maybe it's going to rain two weeks out for a specific event that may or may not affect um, attendance. Um, we may pull in uh, data that this individual user um, has come to our platform and we know a little bit about them. We know um, generally the demographic information about them. We know that they've gone to seven music events and one film event. So, um, you know, maybe we want to inspire them to go to a food and wine event because we think they should, they would also enjoy it. So we might lower the credits for an event for that specific user in order to get them to engage at that moment in that time. Uh, and then there's other things like, uh, we're not there yet, but we're going to be building, a some very interesting kind of, uh, consumer social mechanisms so that people can build, uh, friend communities within festival pass. Um, so if I happen to be connected to 50 other people and 10 are going to a specific event, I might try and inspire you to join your friends at that event by lowering the credits for you at that moment at that time. With that, then with, with the many different data points you can use to kind of leverage how you're going to end up, uh, getting people either using it more or, or influencing other events that they attend. Are there certain ones within this? I know your, uh, services across different events, whether it be music or film or food and wine, are there certain ones where like, okay, this is kind of like a gateway to other ones on the platform where you have, okay, they do a food and wine event and that leads to many others. Like, what are you seeing on kind of that end of the influence with the platform? I know it's still kind of new though. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just about um, understanding their behaviors, right? So uh, the, if you think about it the same way regular e-commerce works is if somebody goes in and buys a product, that's a very deterministic um, expression of interest, right? When they when they take their wallet out to purchase a pair of brown shoes, you know that they're willing to buy brown shoes. But that same user may have gone and looked at, uh, you know, brown shirts. They may have gone and looked at uh, a brown belt. I'm just being a little facetious of the color, but uh, <laughs> but but across the way, right? You you start seeing the interest level that they had. So on our side, if somebody maybe didn't attend a food wine event. But behaviorally, we saw either them specifically or just a segment of people like them uh, on the platform went around and liked 50 different food and wine events, or they liked a food and wine event because you heart, heart it just like you would heart it on uh, you know Facebook or any other kind of place that they've built a 
a, a profile on the platform. So if I know that, hey, this person that typically attends music events has liked a bunch of food and wine events that have music, then that's, a, that's an expression of interest. And that will enable us to provide them more and more offers until they engage in one of those events and expand their horizon. And I want to go into more with Festival Pass and more around the company itself. And one thing going back to with Movie Pass and your experience there as well, I'm curious as to how you were adapting, adjusting along the way, whether it be with the business model and, and everything as well, as you were getting so many users on the platform that you have so much data on them to be able to adjust. Like, how are you going about adjusting, determining what we would change in the pricing. I'm just curious in the, kind of your process with that because it was really interesting to see that throughout I and mean, following along the last couple of years with it. Yeah, so are, are you referring to um, the data collected at MovieFest? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so, so as you, you're probably aware, the pricing did not change that much and that was probably one of the problems. Um, so at MoviePass, it was mostly $10 a month uh, initially and then Later, it did rise a little bit and then um, went back to $10 a month. And uh, <laughs> there, were, there were some senior leadership that had recommended, um, me, me included, had recommended other models that, that should have worked. Um, and, uh, you know, it just at the end of the day, cer- certain, certain senior leadership didn't, didn't make that choice, but that's okay. It was, uh, it was their, their company, their strategy. On that note, real quick, uh, you said the different models that were suggested. I mean, what were some other things within that, that you think could have potentially worked worked better? Because there was a lot of speculation around that. You know, I think we had Movie Pass for I don't know if it was a case study or something in uh, in business school at USC, and there's just definitely different things with it. I'm curious as to what you were thinking of in terms of models. Sure, sure, uh, happy to share. Um, so what we did know, right, is there was a there was a peak time. I think it was. Uh, summer of 2018, the end of the summer, where the beginning of some of the problems started to arise at MoviePass when, you know, when they, they were still gaining customers, but the, the capital in the business wasn't as free flowing. So there had to be some change, if you will. Um, and what we found was consumer, anybody that canceled um, leaving MoviePass, uh, they didn't care. The price was not as important as people assumed it was, right? So it, it was less about, do I pay $10 a month or do I pay 15 or 20? Of course, they're not going to pay 50. But um, I'd be like, almost everybody leaving said, I'd be happy to pay a little more. And I'd be even happy to be capped at three movies a month, as long as I always can see whatever movie I want to see. And I think mm-hmm. that was the core, probably um, consumer facing destruction in terms of consumer confidence was in you know there there was only two ways to limit usage one was cap it at you know two three four movies a month which what it what that does is it limits the drainage of the overusers does that does that make sense uh can you explain a little bit more yeah so so let's just assume that 20 percent of a of a population uh when given the opportunity will overconsume like at the buffet right you go to a buffet 20 percent of the people will eat a lot of the buffet <laughs> and the other <laughs> will eat less um so if you cap it even if it was three or four those 20 percent uh that might typically go see 10 movies a month 15 movies a month um that small amount of population is draining a large amount of the the allocation budget for for being able to go to the movies make sense gotcha yep yep. but if you cap it at three or four you might find that that 20 percent uses all three or four every month and some will drop off some will choose not to 
partake anymore, even though it's still a good deal, they might choose to, you know, say that I no longer can go unlimited, so I don't want it. But that, that they would self-select out. So that would leave um, 80% of the population to use the platform more like they're used to using it. So maybe they'll go to one or two movies a month and still feel like they're getting a deal, but it wouldn't drain the cash needed to um, allocate um, and pay for movies that that 20% of overusers did. So, so that was one example. I think that would have been the, personally, this is just my personal opinion, uh, is uh, I believe when we were at three and a half million um, subscribers, uh, if the company chose to cap it at three movies a month and increase pricing between 15 and $20 a month, depending upon the location in the country, because obviously tickets in New York cost more than they do in Kansas City. Right. I think if they did that, they would have lost about a million customers, but they would have been profitable overnight. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, there's so much, there's so much with that. Obviously, like you mentioned, uh, people who are running the company, it's their decisions because it's their company. They decide on this. I mean, it's just interesting, kind of just to see different models and what potentially would have happened. And I'm, I'm sure, like sure, many people have kind of discussed this uh, over time. And everyone, of course, has an opinion on this. Uh, but from a data perspective, like if you crank the numbers and you see that, then it's kind of fascinating to see. Okay this is potentially what we would have lost, but then we would have been profitable and we could have made it work. And I'm sure there would have been a yeah, plethora of press as well, which I don't know how that comes into play or how you think about that, if at all, maybe not at all, uh, along the way is with these kind of business decisions too. Yeah, yeah. It, it, MoviePass was an interesting, you know, once in a lifetime experience for what it, it did. It changed the way people think about the movie industry uh, and it changed the way you know, I think studios and exhibitors think about it. So I think it was a super impactful company and a reason to be, but it had its uh, had plenty of controversy along the way uh, in terms of the way it went about things. Of course, and, and going from that experience of uh, understanding you had a really unique experience with MoviePass, and then having started a number of companies over the past uh, number a number of years here, really, uh, and sold companies and all that experience going into Festival Pass now. I mean, with this. What did you see as kind of the initial version of what Festival Pass would be in terms of which kind of route you would go with the experiences you would offer uh, and then even acquiring customers in the beginning? Like what were some of the early things just in terms of what this this would look like with Festival Pass? Yeah, I mean, so with all of that experience, I mean, I, I thought deeply about what this would be well before launching it. And I thought deeply about the fundamentals of the industry. Um you know, because I, I knew when I when I went all in, which we are now, um, that uh, that I just needed to ensure the fundamentals of the way the industry works would would allow our business model to work, and it does. I mean, a cu couple of those things going back to marketplaces is the live events industry. Like, think of it in the normal in the normal world, not during COVID, um, but <laughs> in the normal world, it's a two hundred billion dollar global industry. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people think of music only when they think of big live events and concerts, but music is, is only one fourth of the total of that 200 billion. Um, and then the other thing is that there are a lot of big players in the music space that people think of like Live Nation and AEG, uh, and in the U S they often do control a lot of the big major acts, but globally, um, and when you include all different genres, and you include all the different independent music venues, and you include all the different independent promoters, you're in a very disaggregated market. Um, so there's 
tens of thousands of individual companies, groups, or people that are putting these events on, not just a few of the big guys. Um, so what that does is it lends itself perfectly to a marketplace model. Again, going back to the Airbnb example, um, you know, those all those hosts are individuals. Of course, you have different hospitality companies that then might own a hundred properties that then they host and list on Airbnb. It's very similar. So we do have partners that run a hundred events a year and we put their events on the platform. We have partners that um, you know do one big, huge festival for hundreds of thousands of people every year, and that's their only event. Um, but take that and, and build it out across the world, which we plan to um, go country by country after we've sustained kind of um, a core market in the US, is uh, it's, it's repeatable everywhere. It's the, the model works just like just like the Uber Lyft model, where when you go to a city and you build both sides of the marketplace, which is inventory and then consumers, it can be self-sustaining in that one market. But then it gets even exciting when you're traveling because you still have it and you could use it anywhere. With Festival Pass as well, understanding the beginning of this, I know from reading a little bit about kind of the story and everything, there's different ways, obviously, to raise to raise funding for a business and ways to go about that. And you have a lot of experience with that as well. Take me through more of how you're looking at funding for this, why you ultimately decide uh, to go with the route of, of WeFunder uh, for Festival Pass. Sure, sure. So um, I did post an article on Medium that you may be referring to. And, and part of it is, um, you know, it's, it's always been an entrepreneurial dream of mine to be able to use certain financing tools uh, that enables us to capitalize the company in a way that... Um, that not only benefits uh, our ability to still maintain some level of control over the direction of the company, but also uh, reward early investors for for being early investors, right? So yeah. uh, it's sometimes what happens in, in the traditional world of uh, the way a lot of companies are built is, you know, a, a few angel investors come in early, uh, they help build the company a little bit, a little later, venture capital is is brought in, uh, those initial investors get heavily diluted, uh, and then you go on to raise three or four more rounds of venture capital, and each time those early initial investors keep getting more and more diluted because last money in usually gets the best rights and, and the most uh, control and uh, all the things that go along with it. Um, and I just, you know, that model, while it works, if the company becomes a billion-dollar company, um, it doesn't always work if the company is a $100 million company. Right. You know, that, that initial person who put the, call it $100,000 or $10,000 in from day one, um, you know, by the time the company's a $100 million company, they might get back a good, a good return on their investment, but they've been so diluted that they don't get the true reward that they should. So that all being said, I always had this dream to finance it without traditional institutional capital. Um, so what we did is we, we started and you know, being an entrepreneur and luckily having an entrepreneurial network, um, you know, there were some friends, when I say friends, other entrepreneurs um, yeah. willing to put a little bit of money up to get started. So, um, you know, a couple hundred thousand just to get moving on building out the code base and the infrastructure for what we're building. And then along the way, um, you know, we started building a really strong board, board of advisors. Um, you know, uh, the former CMO of Live Nation Concerts is an advisor and the former uh, head of Coca-Cola North America is an advisor and, um, you know, other investors that run venture funds themselves or work in the private equity space are investors personally. Um, so 
they came in early just to kind of create that little bit of base. Um, we even have a professional uh, hockey player for the New York Rangers who's an investor. Um, so, uh, so in that world, we had, we had that core base. But then, you know, for us, the the next step was okay. Now that we have enough initial funds to just start building the platform, how do we um, how do we test it out in the marketplace? How do we let people know it exists and get their feedback and see what they like about it? Um, so we need media. Um, you know, media is not cheap and. Uh, you know, public relations is a great tool, but until you have a little bit of scale, uh, it's hard to get, you know, news to be written about something that barely exists. Yeah. So, so what we wanted to do is uh, get a partner that believes in what we're doing and uh, provides enough media that doesn't require a lot of outbound cash coming out of our, uh, you know, our small fundraise uh, in order to test it. And we did that in uh, the third largest radio network is a company called Town Square Media, and they came in and they provided, um, you know, seven-figure uh, media to us for for equity uh, in order to allow us to go out and, you know, start testing the model. Um, and that that's kind of where we are today. Uh, and then your your last question was the the next step of, of WeFunder, right? So there really is two really awesome, you know, new fintech, when I say new, over the last few years, yeah. ways to raise money and one is the uh, the reg cf crowdfunding so there is the whole uh model from the small business act of 2016 allows um allows companies to raise money from individual investors um without going through the costly uh process of you know filing to go public in an ipo you can still find other ways to to raise that capital and there's three levels and i i don't really need to get into all the details. I'm sure anybody can just Google, uh, you know, crowd, <laughs> crowdfund equity. But there's three. There's Reg CF, Reg A, and Reg D. Um, but Reg CF, you can raise up to a million seventy thousand dollars through this process. Um, you still have to file uh, a lot of information and have audited financials um, with the SEC, uh, which allows you then to be legally able to do it, which is great. But the cost of that is, you know, a few thousand dollars, not a few hundred thousand dollars. Uh, so that's what we did. So we, we went through that process. Um, we just a couple weeks back uh, opened up the CrowdCF funding uh, to raise a million dollars. Um, we immediately got some people that are very interested and already have, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars raised and we haven't even kind of started any kind of marketing efforts into it. Um, but the part of it is that is, is, just that I, I want I want the Main Street investors to have the opportunity to own a piece of the future of live entertainment and watch it evolve because what we're transitioning and we're hope hopefully we're looking to really create an innovative approach to change the way live events are transacted across the entire world uh, and it's going to take a little time and energy to get there but I, I'd rather have the Main Street investors that are our consumers participate in some of that early funding. Um, and not get diluted uh, in, in other ways, um, so they have an opportunity to be a part of it. It's more the you know democratizing fundraising. <laughs> yeah, giving access to a lot of other people, and it, it is an interesting model, especially in the last. You mentioned 2016 was when it happened, and then I think they made changes even recently. I think the last week or two, they've announced even more changes with making it more accessible for people uh, in terms of these investments. How did you end up choosing WeFunder? Just curious. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, there's three to four out there that are as credible, great platforms. Um, 
you know, I, I've, I've known Seed Invest being in New York for, for a while. There's another one called Republic. So there are a few out there that are pretty good. Um, WeFunder came, I, I was discussing um, with uh, other investors that um, work with the WeFunder platform and, and they expressed that they just loved it. They expressed that they're good people, that they work well with their entrepreneurs, that they're, um, they're happy to help along the way. And made an introduction and I talked to them and, you know, I really felt comfortable with what they're doing. So I, I chose them solely through a relationship and solely because I know they alongside two or three others were instrumental in getting the small business act in 2016 passed. So they were there kind of from the start. Yeah. They, they are one of the ones that helped a lot on that end of things. And they are, I mean, very reputable within the space. And I actually looked, looked into them a lot. I was I, one time considering doing that uh, crowdfunding route for just go grind, uh, looking at a number of different ones with festival pass, you mentioned Republic, like start engine as well as a few different ones out there. Um, and there are advantages with that, especially with having an audience behind you. Not only do they get to invest, but they also then will help you grow the company through spreading the word because they, they have a vested interest in helping you do so, which is intriguing for sure. And then with, with SO Pass as well, take, take me through a little bit more of, you mentioned already some of the people behind it, but I'm curious as the, the team for Festival Pass and like, I'm curious about more of that because that's obviously the foundation of a company is the team behind it. Take me through how you've kind of gone about growing the team for Festival Pass up until this point so far. Sure, sure. So there, there's two aspects to it, right? Is um, One, it's uh, the first company I've ever built that to date, at least, is truly a virtual company, um, meaning um, we don't have a, a core office. Uh, we may in the future. Um, I'm actually moving to Austin, Texas next week. Uh, and likely uh, when we decide to have a physical office of some sort, Austin is where it's going to be. But, um, but in the process uh, of building it, it's really about for me, was about um, identifying a few core people uh, and then from there, um, just finding the right talent along the way, right? So, you know, we have a, a development team that is based um, partially in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we have a couple of developers in Lisbon, uh, Portugal, um, which are which are very talented uh, individuals, which are great. Um, you know, I have a biz dev, uh, head of biz dev and partnerships uh, based out of Sarasota, Florida. It just happened to be somebody I've known for 10, 20 years that has vast experience in media and partnerships. Um, so that worked out well. Um, you know, we have a, a marketing and PR team that's distributed throughout the U.S. as well. Um, you know, we have paid media buyer out of L.A. We have PR in New York and, you know, I think Washington, one of their folks is at um, Oregon, uh, near Washington and Oregon. Um, but I don't know if that answers your question. So, so really <laughs> distributed team. <laughs> yeah, it's a distributed team. But as we continue to need specific talent, it's, e it's easy for me to kind of go back into my network and say, hey, I need somebody that has uh, this expertise, um, you know, and then, uh, and then look, look for the right talent and have them join. And because it is virtual, it's not, I need somebody in New York to do X. It's, I just need somebody to do X. That's great and credible. I don't care where they live. Yeah, especially now. I mean, people being forced into the remote work situation, it does allow to look at talent all over the world, really. And you mentioned Lisbon in other places as well. I mean, there, there's talent all, all over that can help you build a company. And so people starting companies, I mean, even like I have a virtual assistant in the Philippines helping with some stuff. I mean, there's, there's just so much opportunity out there for building a company where you don't have to have people in the exact location you, you are located, uh, which is really helpful in thinking about just finding the best people Agreed. to get the job done. 
and and with you too. I mean, what is kind of the growth moving forward for Festival Pass? I mean, what do you focus on uh, with that? What what's kind of the strategy moving forward? Yeah, yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Um, so, <laughs> so part of it is pushing through this fundraise. The second part is uh, we have a ton of partnerships that we're building. Um, you know, one is with live music venues throughout the country, thousands of live music venues. We're going to, uh, you know, announce a partnership in the next couple of weeks. Um, another is, uh, working with, um, large marketing, um, loyalty based programs. There's a, there's a company we're working with now that runs, um, you know, loyalty programs for hundreds of companies, um, where they have different offers. Um, you know, it's a multi hundred million dollar company that, uh, will, enable Festival Pass to be a, a reward for their employees. Um, so that's another path is driving the HR benefits. I mean, if, you, if you're a millennial in a, in a company and you walk in and, you know, some companies would give you a gym membership, but if the company comes and says, hey, um, you know, we like work-life balance, um, you know, as, a, as an employee of this company, um, you know, you now have a membership to Festival Pass, you can go to any event you want anywhere. Um, pretty good perk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Many millennials will be like, yeah, that's, that's sold on that one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we build the business model so that the, the company uh, only has to pay for the usage, not, you know, not necessarily the full price of the membership if it's not being used by a certain portion of the uh, employee base. With Festival Pass as well, I know you you mentioned the learnings and lessons from Movie Pass uh, around the kind of the pricing and model as well. Uh, with then Festival Pass, the business model behind this going into the price, I know you talked about how it's credits and everything as well. But take me through a little bit more of that and how you looked at the pricing and business model behind this, with understanding that you had the lessons and takeaways from your previous experiences. Yeah, I mean, it really goes into that uh, positive gross margin metrics out of the gate, right? So. You know, it's 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 really as simple as that. It's almost impossible to build a business where you can't predict your cost of goods sold. Um, so once you have a mechanism in place to ensure that you can always determine your gross margin, uh, you you can always choose to manipulate that gross margin, meaning that by you know having less of a margin for a popular event and more of a margin for somebody that needs you more and creating a portfolio across a target gross margin. Um, but once you at least have that general range that I know for every dollar that comes through our platform, X amount of percent will turn into a gross margin. And now I know I can use that gross margin to operate the business. Uh, it's much easier to forecast the business out. It's much easier to um, allocate capital to growth. You'd be, it's, it's, once you're able to get that core gross margin metric in place, you can choose a cost to, uh, cost to acquire a customer. Um, so I know right now that we can pay a certain amount of money to acquire a new customer with the assumption that they'll be a customer for three, six, or 12 months. Um, and then once I understand that, paid media, I can just spend that amount of money until I acquire that customer and track them through the lifetime to make sure they're a customer for three, six, or 12 months. Understand that with with that in mind, and with the fact that you're really going hard on the partnership side of it, with it, I mean, how are you looking at partnerships versus versus paid media versus opportunities to grow, uh, and like how you spend your time or allocate your resources towards that? Because the partnerships have a lot of potential, obviously, for any business. Like you can go 10x versus kind of incremental. And then how do you look at that though, with the difference between kind of the paid media side of it versus like let's just focus on partnerships? 
Yeah, gr- great question. Uh, and had you asked me this uh, probably a year ago, I might have had a different answer. But I think I have a little bit of epiphany over the last year. And um, a lot of times entrepreneurs shy away from paid media. Um, and part of it is, you know, one is you just might not have the capital. Two, it, you know, it's easier to say the effort and lift um, of, you know, getting a strategic partner and getting some PR and media around it, it's quote unquote earned, therefore not paid. But one of the problems with relying on only that as a path is it's much harder to put attribution metrics against it. Um, So what's what's actually kind of great, you know, and I I don't want to give too much credence or or positive uh, things to the Facebook, Instagrams of the world, but what, what they did right, you know, regardless of the path is it's pretty easy to know that if I spend a dollar on Facebook, what I get back. Um, and that, that approach really helps build KPIs. Um, so I think any business, no ma- even if it's only spending a thousand dollars or $10,000, whatever that amount is, is by spending paid media in the right way and having enough analytics capacity to, to, to see what you did and, and how you're spending that money, those KPIs, uh, inform the entire business model so that when you do go build a partnership, you know exactly what the affiliate fee will be for the partner. You know exactly what you're willing to give. So all of our um, paid media has informed every every decision we're making on the partnership side because I know, hey, I can spend a dollar on paid media and it will cost me, you know, whether it's uh, 5 10 or $20 per new user I acquire. So if a partner's marketing and branding is going to bring me a new user, I can afford to pay five, ten, or twenty dollars to that partner in order to get the same user. One of the things you you mentioned Ed before as well was around the fact that like you were kind of perfect position for for this business and Festival Pass is basically the world's first festival and live event subscription marketplace. Why do you think that hasn't been done before? Why is that exactly? Uh, a couple of things. Um, so in, in the ticketing and live event space, um, for many years, there's been somewhat of a monopoly. Uh, so, you know, and again, there's lots of different ticketing companies. So I'm not, this is more of a, a, a grand statement, not, not a granular one. Um, but I think everybody knows Ticketmaster is, is <laughs> one of the leaders in the primary ticketing space and stuff. Yeah. Subhub being a leader in the secondary. So, you know, sometimes when industries work and people are making a lot of money in it, um, you know, they're, they're sometimes challengers, uh, you know, are harder to, to come by. Um, and also people have gotten used to certain ways things are done. And, you know, I, I just believe there's better ways to do it. Um, so, so that's one answer. The other answer is um, I think most people in certain industries think within verticals. So for example, I think Live Nation a few years back did do a, a summer concert pass. They, they actually called it, I think, a festival pass. Um, and you know, without getting into deep details on that, I, I explored it and understood exactly how they went about it. I just think strategically they went about it wrong. Um, they did it just like MoviePass did. They did it just like other people did where they didn't control the gross margin. Uh, and therefore their experiment didn't produce the results they wanted, so therefore they abandoned it. Um, so that's one, and uh, you know, and and who knows? Um, you know, it's sometimes there's a time and place where 
you know, the right model comes together for the right industry. You know, why, you know, before Airbnb came about, you know, there was HomeAway, there was a VRBO, there are other ways to rent things that weren't owned by a hotel company. Yeah. Why did Airbnb work when it came? It just was a different way to do things. One thing, the kind of last things I want to talk about, I know we're running out of time here, is just the impact of COVID on Festival Pass. Take me through how that's gone and how you've kind of reacted to that. Yeah. So um, obviously, it's very hard to sell a subscription to live events when there are no live events. So <laughs> tricky, uh, for sure. So, so that that's true. I mean, one of the good things is we did close our radio uh, partnership with Town Square Media right before COVID kind of started truly hitting. Uh, which gave us not only the confidence um, to have some capital in the bank, but also the confidence we um, could use that media um, without draining our cash balance, which helped. I mean, that that just helped us kind of understand the market. The second thing is it's a little bit of a silver lining um, for us um, because while it might've pushed back the growth of the company, um, you know, six to 12 months, what it did do is it enabled us to truly think about the scale side of the business. Um, you know, some companies scale quickly and then have to go back and replace the plumbing that they didn't get a chance to work on early. So for us, is we've been, you know, thinking heavily about the data infrastructure, thinking heavily about how we build our uh, UI UX, thinking heavily about how we scale paid media, uh, getting those KPIs. Um, you know, I mean, we may not have taken the time to do everything right, not saying we did everything right, but taking the time to truly think about scale and expansion the way we have. We've had a little extra time. And I know you hear that a lot with some people that we had time to do the things we probably wouldn't have had time to do had we been running after the ball. Yeah. And I've actually heard that echo from a few different entrepreneurs I've interviewed recently. And um, you know, definitely fortunate to get that partnership secured beforehand. And for other people I've interviewed, getting funding secured early on in COVID and allows them to do those things. Obviously, everyone's not necessarily as fortunate in that regard, but thankfully you had that and that allows you to kind of take those steps. Um, how are you looking at then, just on that same note with COVID then, the, the timing around it, like being aware of which festivals are, are opening when, uh, or even other ones that are kind of coming up as this situation progresses? Like, how are you kind of monitoring that for timelines and everything too? Yeah. So so we have, again, partnerships um, for some of the inventory. Um, you know, we're, as I mentioned, thousands of independent music venues are we're partnering with in order to um, kind of bring them on the platform, knowing that their inventory is not really going to have come about till 2021. Um, but securing those partnerships now, um, so that when the dates become scheduled in 2021, they just automatically flow into the platform. Uh, we also have a, a couple other partnerships with t- ticket aggregators that we tap right into their API and pull, pull the events right through into the platform. So, you know, the nice thing is as more and more of the, Ticketing companies begin to list within their environment. They'll just automatically show up on Festival Pass. Um, and then some of the bigger events, you know, we just, our, our biz dev team is just uh, monitoring closely some of those relationships so that as dates are scheduled for some of the big events, then they'll just come onto the platform. And with Festival Pass, where can people go to learn more? And if they want to connect with you and buy anything at all, where can they connect with you as well? Sure. So um, festivalpass.com is the easiest place. That's the the main address for for the website. Um, And uh, they'll be able to go in. They can sign up for free now uh, and become a member. 
uh, and then in the future, um, they could purchase, you know, uh, programs anywhere from $9 a month up to $99 a month and obviously discounts for committing to a year. Uh, and the, the very important thing though, is if somebody signs up and pays today, um, they're, they're getting credits with every month of paid subscription. Those credits never expire. So, yeah. so it's almost like I, I call it a savings account. It's a, you know, if somebody signed up for, you know, $9 a month today, they get six credits a month, even if they don't go to an event for six months in six months, they'll have 36 credits, um, in their account and they'll be able to use it for whatever the first event they want to go to is. It's somewhat of a savings account that allows them to continue to accrue those credits. And uh, I know we're, we're all kind of hoping that uh, as soon as possible, we can have more events and everything as well, especially for those of us who go to a lot of them. Uh, we're very anxious on that side of things. And something with like Festival Pass is going to obviously be really useful with that. And, and Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights and come on the show today. Of course. Glad to be here. I appreciate it, Justin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.